Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Made for Life. Your podcast is hosted by me, Stuart Perry, and brought to you by the fine people at Tincata Protective Fabrics. Today, we've got a very special guest on the show. Mr. Tim Taylor is joining me. Tim, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good, Tim. I thought today we could talk a little bit about your career in the fire service. Why don't you start us off and tell us how you got started? Well, I came out of high school and um, went to work for the phone company, and uh, they were starting a layoff period, so uh, I applied at several different places. had a friend that was a firefighter, and he talked me into applying. I didn't get on with the fire department he worked at, but I did get on with Clayton County um, in South Metro Atlanta. Wow. And I worked there for 33 and a half years. The last four years, I served as the training officer over special operations, which encompassed our Metro Atlanta task force for the Georgia Search and Rescue Team and uh, taught basic basic fire classes. Wow. So it, since you were working for a, I guess that's pretty metropolitan. Did you see a lot of uh, big structural fires or was it mostly? Uh, yes. Yeah. Good. The well, unit I was on. In 1990, they developed a heavy rescue truck, and it was basically a manpower unit. And what what they did was, if you were on shift that day, any multi-company or structure fire that was dispatched, our unit was also dispatched with them, um, no matter where it was in the county. They tried to centrally locate the truck, and, and we would respond to all all the structure fires or multi-company fires, and then we would also respond to any trench collapse or uh, special rescues of any kind. Uh, trees, people hung up in the top of a tree. Wow. Uh, different kinds of rescues. So, so anything from stuck in a tree to a vehicle extrication, right? Yes. Just like our chief said, anything that was weird plus <laughs> vehicle extrication and, and uh, all the structure fires wow so, so you you retired basically 34 years you were with that department yes now tim after you uh, retired from the department where did you go then well when i was, when i retired i really didn't know if i wanted to retire or not and shortly thereafter i decided to go back to work i had uh, put in some applications and i gotten a call from texas a&m um uh, from Texas, uh, from Teeks out at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. And I went out and interviewed and actually accepted a job, but on the way back from Atlanta, because I worked with the Georgia search and rescue team, uh, the superintendent or director for the fire Academy here in Georgia found out that I was <clears throat> looking <laughs> at a job out there. Yeah. So he, he actually called me and asked me if I would, uh, give him, you know, the time to do an interview and uh, fill out an application for the same position here. They had that position open here too. Oh, so he talked about going to Texas, basically. He he did, and he did it by saying the one thing that he probably could have said uh, was the fact that why would I move to the state to teach firefighters that didn't know me when I could teach firefighters here that you know in an area that had passed information down to me wow so i ended up i ended up going to work for uh george fire academy uh teaching started out teaching the rescue classes rope 
confined space trench, structural collapse. What, um, what does that mean, Tim, trench? What does that mean? Trench rescue is worse. Say if you have a contractor that's digging for a pipeline or some underground utility or for a basement and the dirt caves in on them. Mm-hmm. So, so literally a trench, a literal trench. Yeah, literal okay. trench. Anything, anything over four foot deep. Oh. So, uh, and I had, I had experience. We had done like five trench rescues in Clayton County during my time there. So I took the job here in, in the state of Georgia. It was a cut and pay compared to Texas, but I didn't have to move. Yeah. Well, that's the best part. I guess. Um, yes. And, and I still, you know, myself and my wife were still a, around family because we knew somebody out there, but and it was a close friend of hers but they were still an hour and a half to two hours away from uh, college station. Wow. So we took that job and I worked in the rescue program for about two years. And they had a guy leave that was over their basic fire program. And I had, I had probably the most experience out of the guys that were left at the fire Academy at the time. Um, in teaching basic firefighters. So they asked if I would be interested in, um, taking that program over. And, uh, I took it over. And during the time, during the time from the time I was a training officer at Clayton County till I retired from the state of Georgia after 10 years of service, I taught roughly 900, 900 to a thousand, basic firefighter class, uh, basic firefighters wow. in classes where I was actually their lead instructor. That's something. So we're really talking about 40 years, basically more 45, years, uh, really. 43. Wow. I retired with 43 years, uh, actually 43 and a half years service. Now, let me ask you this question. I know that our paths uh, crossed because uh, we're both in the industry and you get to know people over the years. Uh, what, what role did you play in the evaluation of different types of, of turnout gear or PPE that the firefighters would wear. Now you now you're getting to <laughs> to my fun fun job. Well, throughout the years with the fire academy, I was over the live fire program coordinator, which meant I was his supervisor. And they built the state of Georgia built a brand new in 2010. They built a brand new burn building that w- was a 1.3 million dollar building. It was state of the art building for for that period of time so they were trying to keep from spending money to have it uh, maintenance done on it every year replace block they wanted to go they t- what their goal was it to not replace any block for the first five years right so so i made sure i was out there since it fell under my umbrella that i was out there and that you know people weren't abusing the building uh, if it got damaged it because of an event, then it would get damaged. Mm. Well, y'all had a guy named, uh, I think his name was George. George Comer. He yeah. came yeah. down and we, we did some photo shoots for station wear and turnout gear was the first thing that we did. And it was just a straight up photo shoot. But then George came back and asked if we would be interested in testing gear for durability and you know how how it reacted during fire situations and different type scenarios like that and 
the guy that was over me uh, actually uh, said, yes, I have the perfect person for that because when he was a firefighter at Clayton County, he tore up all the turnout gear that they gave him. <laughs> so th- that's how I got it. Nice. Um, and uh, I guess in knowing knowing that y'all were looking for different things and it was a long-term or each each set of gear that we got was a long-term type trial, say three months to six months to even a year, little over a year. I tried to keep records on what the temp- highest temperature was and how many times it was exposed to actually loading uh, pallets on to the fire in the burn building during burns. So in, in, in the burn building in a controlled burn, is that is that the only thing you guys would burn would be pallets? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it, to meet the to meet the criteria, you have to burn clean wood, and the easiest thing to do is to get a uh, a pallet, which actually started buying new pallets when uh, NFPA came out and said it had to be, you know, clean clean new wood yeah. they would buy like ten thousand dollars worth of pallets a year now for the folks that are listening that might not be familiar with the nfpa why don't you tell us what that is That's national uh national fire protection association and they set and, the standards for they they write standards for yeah. fire fire departments to go by excellent not just fire departments but uh anything that's in the fire industry the material uh, that y'all make uh, turnout gear the way it's designed and and worn, uh, helmets, air packs, all the equipment and everything. So right, right down to the boots, even right. Right, right down to it. And so, they they also provide guidelines on how to clean and care for the gear as well. Yes, yeah. yes. So and go ahead, please go ahead. Go. Well, I was just going to say, you know, one of the coolest things that we did was y'all had some gear come out, which is now combat flex. I think that's the name of it. It's PBI. I think I got it right. Yeah, it's, it is Combat Flex, powered by PBI. That's right. Right. And and when y'all brought it out, y'all just brought it out. I think it was you and uh, the guy that at the time that was actually developing some of the material or, or designing it and um, said, look, we want y'all to wear this. Uh, give us your feedback on it. And myself and another firefighter, our younger guy, actually were put into a set, and we wore it for – I think it was a little over a year or so before it actually ever came out. Wow. And we weren't told what we were supposed to be looking for. And we ended up, because it had Kelbar in it, we found out later that y'all were looking for the durability side of it, how it held up to actual firefighting evolutions, which the younger guy that was geared up for it, he did that. He did the everyday crawling on the floor, sliding on the concrete, demonstrating, climbing up and down ladders, everything uh, with that gear. And through my side on the fire loading side of it, we realized that in the past turnout gear, when it got hot, when the material got hot, it would take it, you would have to let it cool down completely and clean it for it to recycle and cool off to where you could get a long, a long run without it getting hot again. Yeah. But, but the combat flex, we found out that you could go outside and sit down after about 10 or 15 minutes and cool off, get fresh air tank and turn around and go back in 
and get the same number of runs out of it on the second or third run as you could on the first one because it it would just cool off and and it was the same thermal barriers as our other turnout gear so so it wasn't the thermal barrier was better it was the outside material was actually shielding us from some of that heat well that's awesome to hear and and for the folks listening that that may not know i'm assuming if they're interested in firefighting they're probably familiar with it but what the firefighter wears in his turnout gear or his bunker gear is a three-layer system that consists of the outer shell fabric, a moisture barrier, and then next to the skin is a thermal barrier. So there's three levels yeah. of protection in there. So so you're saying the combat flex gear was pretty good? Very good. Excellent. That's outstanding. Now, in, over your career, you've probably worn a lot of different types of gear, I guess. I have worn a lot of different types of gear, and most of it's been due to um, doing research and development for y'all. Now, when you first started, um, were the were firefighters still wearing cotton duck, or were they wearing? Uh, they were. Wow, they were. That's back in the old we, days. We had cotton duck with uh, rubber backing on the uh, inside liner. Wow, so it was probably the old neoprene they used to use, right? The old neoprene, and actually, the uh, officers got to wear what the what we used to call day boots, which were basically a boot that had a an extension that would come up uh, just about to the groin area, and and a little bit longer coat. Wow. Yeah, just, that reminds me of when I was a kid. That's what firefighters look like. And uh, the, what a lot of people don't know, and I'm going to test your knowledge here to see if you know, the current modern design of the American firefighter helmet. Do you know who designed that? I do not. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It was Benjamin Franklin. Nice. That's how long that design's been around. And I'm sure you've heard this one. There's an old saying in the fire service. There's two things a firefighter hates, and that's for things to say the same or for things to change. <laughs> So a lot yeah, of, well, that's about right. Yeah. So when you, you try to introduce uh, anything new to the industry, it takes a minute for it to catch on. But in your experience, what do you think the primary difference is between firefighters when you retired and when, when you started? What are the, is, it, is it what they're looking for or what they expect or how they work? I mean, what, what do you think is the big difference? Um, you know, that's that question there is kind of loaded because I have seen guys that come in the fire service. I have a son that uh, he's been in the fire service for 20 years. Um, when he came in, you know, he, I could see he already came with some fire knowledge because he'd been around me for so long. Oh, yeah. When I when I got in the fire service, I knew nobody except for one of my close friends from high school that was in the fire service. And the kids nowadays, I think the biggest thing is, is so many of them don't don't get outside and, and do outdoor activities as much as the majority of uh, young people used to. Mm-hmm. So they come into the fire service and and they have this misconception of, that it's like a normal job and it's <laughs> nothing like a normal job. It's, it's like a big family. So if you come and you were an only child, then you're probably going to be have your feelings hurt a lot the first six months to a year. <laughs> I guess so. And, and if you come from a big family, you'll fit right in. Uh, you know, they come in. The one thing I will say, it, the fire service was more paramilitary even back 20 years ago than it is today. Hmm. Today, it's not, it, it still has some of the, you know, command structures of a paramilitary type unit. But hmm. uh, in today's world, you know, kids just aren't used to that. So I yeah. think it's kind of evolved into 
you know, a more of a hybrid type. Uh... Yeah. Tim, did I lose you? You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Uh, you dropped off for a second. I want to make sure you're still with me. So uh, I think I can probably agree with you on that. It seems to me that it's more of a scientific type exploration these days. There's a lot more technology than there used to be. A lot more technology. I think people are, well, I know that certainly we try to make sure that firefighters get educated because a lot of times you meet firefighters that really don't understand how their gear functions. So do you think kids today have more of an idea or less of one? I, I think kids today are taught more about it than they were when I was coming up in my career. I know. And even when my son came up through, you know, the early stages of his career, mm. Well, do you think uh, do you think there are going to be any major changes in the fire service? For instance, I know that uh, they're looking at switching to the European style helmets, or maybe they're looking at maybe not going inside structure fires anymore. What do you think about all that stuff? You know, I I think that the European style helmet, if people would try it, they they would like it better as far as wearability and um, the the functions of it that they could do. Mm-hmm. The fire service is so traditional, though, yeah, and and everything. And on the European style helmet, everybody's helmet looks exactly same as the next person's. Yeah. So in the American American fire service, I don't know if it'll ever take on widespread. Yeah. But as far as going into fires, I don't know how they could do that. Uh, you know, how do you? I can remember when the fire service started two in, two out. That was a big change. You had to have two people outside if you were going to dedicate two people to interior firefight. Yeah. And the shift before our department brought it out to us, I had actually gone into a fire that we had called a defensive fire out from the front, which means you're going to fight it from outside. You're not going to, you know, the structure looks pretty much like it's the fire's developed, that it's unsavable. Mm-hmm. And then when we pulled into the front yard, a guy told me that his grandson was in the corner room. Holy cow. So that room had no fire in it. I could see the ceiling. So I threw the ladder up, went through the window, felt around the room, pulled out a baby out of a baby bed and and passed it out to my teammate that was at the window. And then when the battalion chief came around the next shift and said, oh, well, we're doing this new thing now, two in, two out. I told him, I said, you might as well write me up because, you know, if I'm (laughs) faced with a situation that somebody's inside, I'm going inside. And if I'm the only person there, I'm just the only person there. Holy cow. That's incredible. Um, Because that's what you get in the fire service force to help people. Yeah. How do you help people when you're standing in the front yard looking at them? I I understand it when, you know, the, the structures burn up and you know, it's more than 60% consumed in fire and there's not a whole lot you can do, but you know, how, how do you stand there when, and just say, well, we're not going inside anymore. I don't, I don't think, I don't think the people that have been in the fire service for a while are ready for that type of change. So you, you would say that it's, it's largely situational. It depends on what's going on at the fire ground. Very right? situational. Yeah. Very I, situational. I can agree with that. Well, let me ask you this. I had a, a battalion chief tell me once uh, that uh, he felt like that turnout gear had gotten too good, that the kids were too protected. They didn't, like in the old days, you could tell when it was hot because your ears would get hot. But now in the age of the hoods and the 
superior gear and the technology, he's, he seemed to think that a lot of the kids were getting too brash. They, they stayed in the fire too long. What do you think of that? I, you know, I don't, I don't really buy that because you can still see, I mean, even, even if you're in a smoke filled atmosphere, there's not been very many fires that I've gone in that you couldn't feel some kind of heat. And if you train in your gear, you know that the gear gets hot after a period of time and in a controlled situation. Yep. So if you're in a real house fire, and this is what I would tell my students, if you're in a real house fire and your gear gets hot like it is in a concrete burn building, it's time to go. Yep. It's time to get out because something bad's fixing to happen. The building's fixing to collapse or you know, you're fixing to be involved in a flashover or, or some type of weird event because houses aren't concrete buildings and they don't react like a, a burn building does. So I, I just think it's a training thing. I think people should train in their gear enough that they know when their gear is getting compromised, you know, by the feel of what, what heat you do feel inside that gear. Well, I guess that makes sense. Um, well, Tim, we're at about 21 minutes. I don't want to hang you up too long. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'd love to have you back. What do you think? You think you come back for another show? Sure, anytime. That's outstanding. Tim, I want to thank you for being on today. And if you'll hang on while I do the outro, we can work out the details. Sound good to you? Sure. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in again to uh, this latest episode of Made for Life, which is once again brought to you by the fine people at Tinkata Protective Fabrics. And we hope you'll stand by for the next episode. Until then, we'll see you.